people don't just need blankets and food. They need to have their rights protected, their rights to education, their rights to political citizenship. And balancing the provision of assistance with providing this critical rights-based assistance is one of the things that humanitarianism has utterly failed in and continues to fail in today. According to one estimate, the global refugee population has more than doubled over the past decade to 26 million. The United Nations says every minute, 20 people are forced to flee their homes, leaving behind everything to escape war, persecution or terror. A project at UC Davis aims to help refugee students start or continue their university education even as they're displaced and on the move. This is The Backdrop, a UC Davis podcast exploring the world of ideas. I'm Satirius Johnson. The innovative project is the Article 26 Backpack, and joining us today to discuss it is Keith Wattenpah, professor and director of the Human Rights Studies Program at UC Davis. He leads the Article 26 Backpack Project, and he's most recently the author of the book Bread from Stones, The Middle East and the Making of Modern Humanitarianism. Thanks so much for coming on today, Keith. Thank you, Soterius. It's good to be here. So to start off, can you explain what the Article 26 Backpack is? Of course. So just to, to follow up on your, your introduction, the, the, the numbers of, of displaced around the world are so enormous, it's hard to grapple with it. But it really translates into about 1% of the world's entire population is either refugee or has been displaced uh, or is on the move, is a, is a migrant, a forced migrant. So the Article 26 backpack is uh, a way for refugees and other displaced people to effectively curate, store, and share uh, across international boundaries or locally their critical academic documentation. And this is really important because most refugees, most people on the move, most forced migrants around the world really don't have good access to higher education. And we know that higher education is one of the most effective means for people to make the transition to new societies, but also to ready themselves to go home to societies and help uh, rebuild them. And for years, we've been we've been looking at the, the problems of refugees at UC Davis. And uh, the most critical we've discovered is that they're often missing important educational documents. So things like a high school diploma or right. a transcript, the grade transcript, things like that, that would allow them to apply to, say, another school or to continue their education in some other way. That is right. And so what we've also found is that when people don't have proper documentation, that this gives this provides a way for government agencies or uh, universities or colleges to discriminate against refugee people, too. And so we, we developed the Article 26 Backpack Project, which is named for the 26th Article of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, that establishes that all of us, you, me, everyone listening to this podcast, has the, has the basic human right to education. And so what we wanted to do as a research group and, and as a, a form of civic and public engagement by the university is take off the table an entire category of problems facing refugee young people which is the fear that their transcripts might be lost, that they're not going to have access to, to their diplomas, but rather we could provide a way for them to safely and securely store those documents, 
uh, and then you know, maintain them safely here on servers that we maintain at UC Davis, and then be able to, with a few clicks of a mouse and taps on a keyboard, be able to share those documents with anyone around the world that might be able to help them, an admissions office, a scholarship organization, uh, maybe even an employer. And for, for many people listening, they think, why, why, why is it so important to, to store documents? And amongst right. refugees, this is one of their great anxieties. You know, and I, I was just thinking back uh, this morning to conversations I had with refugee young people in, the, in Lebanon's Beka Valley in 2017. And they would talk about how they would have to carry in folders or notebooks or backpacks, physical backpacks, their, their diplomas and their academic documentation. And they were always worried that if they were on a bus moving from one place to another, they might be stopped by the secret police or by immigration mm -hmm. officials, taken off that bus and being forced to abandon the only copies they had access to of their materials. Right. And so, you know, we, we don't think a lot about that. We think that our documents are always going to be there, that we can always get them, uh, get copies of them because they're all stored. But for refugee young people, especially those fleeing countries that have, are on the, in civil war or on the precipice of some kind of collapse like Afghanistan, they can't, they can't count on that. That's not a given. And so we, we developed this project as a way to, to let them focus on other problems that they're going to face as refugee young people. Right. And it, it's called the Article 26 backpack, but it's not a physical backpack. It's a virtual backpack. So right. why don't you explain a little bit about how, how it works? So it's a, it's, a, it's a digital ecosystem in which human beings complement the capacity of a digital uh, platform that was developed here by our uh, instructional educational technology program. And in fact, the, the backpack as a piece of software uh, won a prize from the University of California this last year. And so what we've been able to do is we create the backpack as a multi-pouched platform with an educational pouch, uh, a pouch for other kinds of, of documents. And students are able to enter information uh, about their educational background uh, in a way that is universally recognizable and designed by a group of admissions officers and college registrars. They're able to describe their educational experience and then just using a simple cell phone, they can photograph their documents and upload them into the cloud where we will protect them for them to use it at any time they want. And in addition to their educational documents, we've provided opportunities where they can upload, for example, letters of recommendation or CVs. Or one thing that often happens uh, amongst uh, refugee populations is that they take advantage of short courses uh, like we might do, like a, a night course in something and receive a certificate in, say, uh, coding or EMT or or uh, teaching English that they then can also upload. And the backpack also provides an opportunity for them to uh, record and upload multiple uh, statements of purpose where they talk about their experiences and their goals. Because uh, we find that it's really important both for them and for potential employers or admissions offices to see 
to see not just their documents, but also to see them as people. And that often gets lost uh, in the equation. So this is this is actually more than just, you know, advising people who feel that they might become refugees to upload their documents to the cloud. This is more than that. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the best thing is if people can upload when they have safe access to their materials before they're displaced. And that's I hope we could talk about this. This is one of our hopes for working in Afghanistan, which is still relatively stable, uh, but we think could have problems in the near future. Right. But once all these materials are are safe and secure within Backpack, then the individual can select and choose elements of it to share via a, a safe uh, a form of email communication, uh, which uh, sends a, a code and a key to someone like at a, you know, on the other side of the world who can then use it to open up and take a look at their materials as part of an application process or an employment process, or even in some cases, an immigration process. And you know, we, we know it works because many young people have taken an opportunity uh, in places like Lebanon and in California, and we're hoping very soon in Rwanda, uh, that you know, they look to this as a way to make sure that what they've accomplished uh, what they've they've worked to do as as students uh, is preserved, and that they'll always be able to share it with people who might be able to help them. How did you come up with the idea for it? In 2013, um, this was about the really the second full year of the the war in Syria. Uh, I led a, a research group to Jordan, where there was beginning to be larger and larger numbers of refugees, uh, still relatively, a relatively small number to the almost 6 million refugees that there are now from the war in Syria, had begun to move into, into Jordan. And we knew that there would be uh, in that group uh, displaced refugee university students because Syria had a very large uh, higher education sector before the war. And we also knew that many of the young people who had been demonstrating had been part of the Arab Spring era uprisings against the Syrian government were university students, um, as, as you might imagine. And so when we went to Jordan, we went to what still is the largest uh, Syrian refugee camp called Zatari, uh, which is right along the in the northern part of Jordan, right with the border with Syria. We met with dozens and dozens of refugee university students. And amongst the first problems they identified was that they had to flee so quickly that they didn't have all, all their proper documents. And they only had bits and pieces of them. And they you know, were worried and they'd experienced discrimination at Jordanian universities mm -hmm. when they began to try to re-enroll because they didn't have everything that they needed. And so that set us to work, uh, not only trying to understand that problem and how to address it, but a whole host of other problems. Uh, for example, during that uh, research visit to Zatari, we began to see how families in exile were placing a very high priority on seeking education for their, their male children, but often pushing their women, their young women, who had been going to uh, universities, pushing them into early marriage. So we saw this as a real problem too, and it kind of uh, it spoke to us that there was an imperative to figure out ways to facilitate access to higher education for young women, because we were worried about losing an entire generation 
of not just college-age young people who weren't getting back into higher ed, but also reversing all the gains in female education that have been so hard won in Syria over the previous decades. And I have to say, it's um, the, the, the outcome, I mean, we, we called attention to the problem, but there has not been the kind of concerted action in the intervening years to really uh, reverse that trend. Right. So you mentioned Syria, you mentioned Lebanon. Where Where is this Article 26 backpack available? And uh, how many people have, uh, you know, participated in it so far? Backpack is available in five different languages. So the backpack was first deployed in Lebanon beginning in the in late 2018 through 2019. And uh, over a thousand young Syrian refugees, Palestinian refugees, and at-risk Lebanese youth are using it. Uh, we then also had a small uh, deployment here in Sacramento as a as an experiment, uh, primarily with uh, newly arrived refugees, primarily from Afghanistan. And over the next couple months, we're going to be beginning a project uh, in Rwanda, where we're going to be using backpack to assist primarily uh, refugees from the civil war in Burundi, as well as the ongoing conflict, generations-long conflict in Congo, who have taken refuge in Rwanda, in addition to helping local uh, Rwandan young people. And our goal over the last uh, few months, uh, as Backpack has expanded its languages to include, for example, Persian, Afghan Persian, and Spanish, is to identify opportunities to use the Backpack in growing areas of, of concern. Uh, of course, in South America, that's, uh, our, our focus has been the, uh, uh, has been Venezuelans who have left that country and fled to places like Colombia and to uh, Peru and Ecuador and, and elsewhere in South America. Although we, we began that work just as many of these countries entered into periods of, of not, you know, nothing near civil war, but pretty significant political unrest, which has made it very difficult for us to work. But also we have a great deal of concern about what will happen to Afghan women students in particular, as uh, concern grows that with the United States withdrawal from Afghanistan and the rising uh, power of the Taliban, that we could be witnessing uh, in very short order the Taliban taking over even more of Afghanistan, and in particular, those areas where over the last 20 years, there's been a tremendous increase in women attending um, university. And, you know, the hostility of the Taliban to women's education, you know, not just at higher education levels, but any form of education has really said to us that it's important to figure out ways to help Afghan women uh, in the what we hope will not be, but certainly is the quite possible circumstance of them being forced to leave their country to continue their education and certainly not being able to have access to their academic records. I mean, there's so many areas of the world that, you know, there's just so much unrest. How do you decide where to offer it? Well, it's also where we can build partnerships with local NGOs that will help us implement it. So, you know, just to, to give you a sense of it, we've been also reaching out, for example, on the Thai-Burmese border. So as uh, unrest flares in 
Burma, uh, Myanmar, in opposition to the regime there, uh, my students uh, were able to reach out to uh, teacher training non-governmental organizations in Thailand that for a generation have worked primarily with Karen refugees, but now we're seeing more and more uh, university students who had opposed the regime, who were facing you know, arrest or extrajudicial killing, uh, fleeing across the border, who could really use access to backpack as they make decisions about forward movement, either into places of um, resettlement or in the best case scenario, are able to return to Burma to resume their education. So to some extent, where we bring backpack is an outcome of the curiosity and interest of many of our own students. And one area that I that we're, we're really excited about uh, that's completely student-driven is bringing backpack to our DACA and AB 540 students uh, here at UC Davis, but uh, throughout California, of course, who, while not refugees, do face some of the same uncertainties and um, conditions of uh, precarity that refugees around the world face, a fear that they might face some kind of uh, of arrest or, or deportation or that they might you know, not be able to access their, their academic documentation because of, of changes in federal law or, or government. And so they see, they've identified Backpack as something very important that they want to uh, work with in getting into the hands and on the backs, if you will, of of our dreamers and our AB five forty students. Right. So, how how are you measuring success in the in the project? I mean, how many uh, participants have gotten into college or university? I mean, what kind of metrics are you using to to measure how it's working? So, our our primary metric, our most our most important metric, uh, is how many people use it to safeguard their documentation. Because to us, that's one, that's one of the most important outcomes here, is it just as I, I talked about at the very beginning of the interview, uh, losing access to one's documents may not be such a concern for us, but it's a day-to-day fear and reality amongst uh, refugee young people. So we, we look at how many people have signed up for Backpack. We also spend a great deal of time training people on how to enroll people into refugee young people into the backpack itself. Uh, and those numbers are our most important metric. And we look at that as the also the foundation of building an international community of refugee uh, university young people uh, to, because I, we, one of the things that we, that's, that's very important to us is trying to figure out ways to, to, to explain to possible host societies the humanity and the potential of refugee young people, that they're not to be feared, they're people with basic rights, and they have the capacity to add to the, to the peace and prosperity of the places where they're going, as well as be successful uh, residents and perhaps even citizens. What we do see is young people uh, using backpack, it's not something you'd use every day, right? I mean, we don't share our documentation every day. We do see them using it in seeking scholarships. Uh, Often what they'll do is they'll apply for a scholarship. They'll have their documents on backpack. They'll download them and attach them to their their applications. Uh, 
we really don't know yet if there are, because it's only, we've only been using it for a couple of years in any large amount. If this is, this is absolutely crucial that the, in terms of their success, but we do know that, that they themselves, the refugee young people place a tremendous value on having access to this tool and ecosystem. The other measures of success are how many organizations are reaching out to us to invite us to use it for the people they're working with. So uh, you know, we try to respond to those organizations, as I've explained before, looking to use Backpack. And we see that again as a, as a measure of, of what we're doing, uh, where we can get it to places of need. And how integral are your undergraduate students in this project? So our Backpack interns or our Backpack guides that we have here at UC Davis are really a fundamental feature of the Backpack success. And it's also one of the other metrics of success from my perspective as a director of human rights studies, which is that as a, as a disciplinary field, human rights studies is not just about studying human rights, but understanding what works in the protection and promotion of the rights of others. And so we learn that by doing it. And so right now I have a, a, a I have a, with the cooperation of global affairs at UC Davis, we have about 15 interns working um, primarily assigned on the basis of the languages of backpack, working in all in different parts of the, the world. Uh, for example, the, the, the backpack guides just recently helped create a series of multilingual videos about how to use the backpack. And it was wonderful because you know, one day it was English and the next day it was Arabic. And then we're about ready to start producing the ones. Oh, and then the th- next day it was French. And then we're about to do the ones in Spanish and, and Persian. Since the people who need to use Backpack are students themselves, our students working to help them have access to it is a critical act of solidarity, but also something that, that I mean, this is, this is really important, Soterius. When we would go to work with refugees in the field, one of the things that they would tell us is that what, or they would ask, which is that why has the world forgotten us? Why, 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 why is the world forgotten us? And I, I didn't have a very good answer except to say, well, I'm here, um, and I'm here to listen. But I, I knew that by and large, the world would rather not remember or think about refugees. Uh, they're seen as an amorphous, sort of amorphous mass. They're seen as a nuisance, as a, a potential health and safety uh, and political hazard. Uh, you know, refugees, to quote the great theorist of human rights, Hannah Arendt, are considered the scum of the earth. And most governments and and most uh, most countries would just rather they would go away. And so I think that they were right to feel this, this emotion of abandonment or neglect. And by involving our young people at UC Davis and reaching out to them um, and taking their needs seriously and working hard to try to meet them, uh, not only is it the uh, a critical implementation of core human rights studies principles, but it's a fundamental act of human solidarity. And it's our way of saying to them, no, you're not forgotten. We value you. We understand the potential, uh, your potential and your capacity for doing well. But also that we recognize your right, your basic human right to education, 
and our responsibility to do what we can to make sure that you have access to that right. So that's, it, it's, you know, our, our, our backpack guides at UC Davis, I think they get that. And that's why, you know, we, every year we have, you know, we've been able to put together this very large team of young support personnel, if you will, uh, to make the backpack happen. But I just can't imagine backpack working anymore without, without the undergraduates from the Human Rights Studies Program helping us make it work. They have kind of an Instagram meetup of some kind, mm-hmm. and they, they do kind of office hours, and they, they talk to guides and refugees in other parts of the world, and they work with them on it. And what's wonderful about our students is they, they come from many of the places that are facing these terrible uh, problems. They come from Central and South America. They come from the Middle East. They come from East and Southeast Asia. So, you know, this is, this is them reaching back into the societies that their ancestors, you know, in some cases fled as, as refugees as well and seeing ways that they can help. Right. I'm sure that it's an amazing, they must feel it's an amazing opportunity to not only learn about these things, but to Mm -hmm. actually be able to do something to help. I mean, that's not something you normally get in a, in a college class. Helping like that, that sort of responsibility element is something that we really emphasize in uh, human rights studies at UC Davis, which is that, you know, it's not just about your own rights. It's about what you can do to protect and promote the rights of others. That's really great. You know, before we go, um, I wanted to briefly ask you about your most recent book, Bread from Stones, the Middle East and the Making of Modern Humanitarianism. In it, you rethink the history of humanitarianism. What, what exactly did you find? How did you approach it differently? I, I, one of the things, of course, is that... Um, I wanted to understand how humanitarianism moved from charity, which is primarily sort of imagining that the poor will always be with us and, and to a form of development, which was seeing humanitarian assistance as a way to expand people's right to uh, proper food and healthcare and forms of development. And it's, it's an interesting transition. It wasn't smooth. Uh, it's a transition in which some, I think, some terrible choices were made. But I focused primarily on that question in the wake of the genocide of the Ottoman Armenians in 1915, when the enormity of the destruction of the Armenian community of Anatolia by the Ottoman government during the First World War, uh, you know, somewhere like one and a half million Armenians were killed over a five-year period by the Ottoman state. Uh, and it was accompanied by the transfer of children, the, uh, the enslavement of women uh, and young men. Uh, it, was, it was a terribly brutal experience, but the enormity of it was such that the world community couldn't just use old-fashioned forms of charity, but actually had to build a structure for humanitarian assistance. And what I noticed in that was that the form of humanitarian assistance was one that sought to create community amongst the refugees, especially the Armenian refugees, and help them rebuild as a kind of of, of ethnic or national entity, uh, which was which was unique at the time. And so I chart the evolution of, to that point, the largest American non-governmental organization which was called Near East Relief, which exists today as the Near East Foundation uh, and, and its work. And so the book is also an attempt 
Um, and um, something I'm hoping to do in a, a book that I'm writing right now called The White Savior and the Waif, Listening to Humanitarian Histories Unheard, which is uh, try to understand humanitarianism from the perspective not just of, of the Westerners who were doing it, but from the perspective of those who needed it and were participating in it as refugees and people who had survived genocide. Mm-hmm. What would you say is, is one of the major takeaways of it? One of the major takeaways of that is humanitarianism that isn't also committed to the human rights of people needing help ultimately will not be able to accomplish its purpose. It won't work because people are, are more complex. They don't just need blankets and food. They need to have their rights protected, their rights to education, their rights to political citizenship. And balancing the provision of assistance and, and sort of relief, if you will, with providing this critical rights-based assistance is one of the things that humanitarianism has utterly failed in and continues to fail in today. And so humanitarianism can only work when those elements are combined. Well, Keith, this has been really great. Thank you so much for coming on to The Backdrop. Thank you, Soterius. My pleasure. Keith Wattenpah is a professor and founding director of the Human Rights Studies Program at UC Davis. He's also director of the Article 26 Backpack Project. Find out more about the Article 26 Backpack on our website, ucdavis.edu slash the-backdrop-podcast. You can listen to and subscribe to The Backdrop on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like this podcast, check out our other UC Davis podcast, Unfold. It breaks down complicated problems and unfolds curiosity-driven research. Join public radio veteran and host Amy Quinton and co-host Kat Curlin for Unfold. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Satirius Johnson, and this is The Backdrop, a UC Davis podcast exploring the world of ideas.